With his book, No Better Place to Die, The Battle of Stones River, published in 1990, author Peter Cousins brought a new level of sophistication to Civil War battle writing. He followed that up with studies of other battles, including Corinth, Chickamauga, and Chattanooga. In his latest work, he draws some surprising conclusions about a familiar topic. The book is Shenandoah, 1862, Stonewall Jackson's Valley Campaign, and our guest on Civil War Talk Radio today is Peter Cousins. Join us on Civil War Talk Radio. Everyone faces conflict at home, at work, in the community, in the world. Fix Your Conflicts is a show about how to fix those conflicts with practical tips and techniques. Doug Knoll brings to the Internet airwaves the first of its kind, a show that teaches peaceful resolution to life's daily battles. That's Fix Your Conflicts with Doug Knoll, broadcasting live every Monday at 11 a.m. Pacific on World Talk Radio Studio A. Answer the president's call to service. As an AmeriCorps member, I know that Americans everywhere are helping each other, showing strength of character. As a senior corps volunteer, I know that Americans are showing kindness and compassion. As an AmeriCorps member, I see plenty of American spirit and enthusiasm. Together, we make America strong. Together, we make America great. Find out how you can serve at nationalservice.org. It's your world. It's your chance to make it better. Apply online at nationalservice.org. The world is talking. World Talk Radio, Studio A. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, on a delightful September afternoon in 2008. The weather has cooled off. It's below 70 for the first time in nine months, and everybody's happy. The legal disclaimer, as ever, is that I'm not speaking for the university or the Thomas Harriet College of Arts and Sciences, to which the history department belongs, nor the history department or the public history section of the history department or anybody other than myself, and I'm sure our guest will uh, likewise be speaking just for himself. We are here in our fifth season now at Civil War Talk Radio, and I've had some interesting shows, at least I found them interesting, I hope you did as well this past few weeks, and we have some very uh, intriguing guests on the lineup ahead, George Rabel, Ed Ayers, uh, John Latcher, Superintendent of Gettysburg National Military Park, will be with us uh, sometime in the next month or so, and uh, it looks like Without meaning to the theme this year, this this fall season has been the Eastern Theater. I'm personally a Western Theater guy myself, but we've looked in the last few weeks at the uh, uh, the well. Actually, we haven't. We looked at the West the last few weeks. We had uh, Sherman's March last week and the Railroad Chase. But two weeks ago, we had Gary Eckelberger's very interesting book on a piece of the Shenandoah Valley campaign. 
This week we've got the whole Shenandoah Valley campaign, and future guests will be talking about Fredericksburg, uh, Gettysburg. We have biographers of people like Wade Hampton and uh, Edward Johnson uh, getting lined up. So a lot of interesting things ahead, and hope you will join us for that. If you care to support Civil War Talk Radio with your donations, the PayPal address to do that is civilwartr at aol.com. And those donations, while not tax deductible, are always welcome. Uh, well, let's get to our show this week. And uh, our guest, uh, the author of the new book, Shenandoah 1862, Stonewall Jackson's Valley Campaign, uh, Peter Cousins. Mr. Cousins, are you there? Yes, I am. How are you, Jay? Good, good. Do you go by Peter or Pete? Uh, I, either way. If, <laughs> no well, very good. Well, you and I have never met, and which seems kind of odd in the, the, the crossing of paths that normally goes on in the Civil War world, but I feel like I've known you for a long time, and I will tell you why. Your first book came out, it was 1990, is that right? Uh, that's correct. Technically, it was late 1989, but they put a 1990 publication date on it. Okay, yeah. well, I, I remember seeing it for the first time in a bookstore. I guess it would have been December, perhaps, of, of, of 89. I was in graduate school um, at Harvard, which I haven't yet told the public uh, this, this season. Uh, that was a, a weekly feature, uh, pointing out the Harvard education, because I, I ought to get something for it. And uh, here's my chance to do it this year. So we've got that out of the way. Well, there I was in uh, Harvard Square at a bookstore, uh, taking a break from my dissertation that I was working on, which was a... Uh, unique and, I thought, very uh, worthwhile study of the Battle of Stones River, something no modern author had written about. And I was uh, pretty well into it. I had uh, done a certain amount of research. I had visited uh, the, the National Military Park there and used their files. And, and then I saw your book. And that, of course, uh, as, as my advisor said, the bloom is off the rose. Uh, someone has beaten you to it. You need a new topic. And I, I moved on to write about the Army of the Ohio as an institution rather than the single battle. But uh, there you were always a step ahead, uh, getting to the topic first. So uh, it's nice to talk to you finally after, after uh, all these years of, of, of hidden rage and aggression on my part. <laughs> that, that doesn't leave you much to say, I guess. I'm, I'm no, teasing about the rage. It's better that we're talking a thousand miles away than face-to-face. -face. <laughs> there's, yes. there's aggression involved. But, no, seriously, thank, thank you very much uh, for, the, for the compliment. It, it, was, uh -huh. it, it really was an outstanding book, and it really did uh, you know, fill the field. There is no need for another Stones River battle book uh, and won't be for some time. Uh, that, that did a, a good job. You said you're thousands of miles away, and I know you work for the State Department. Where are you actually? Well, maybe not a thousand miles. I could go hyperbole. Right now I'm uh, back in Washington, D.C. at the Department of State uh, uh, for my, my second year back here uh, after 13 years consecutively abroad. Where, where have you served? Uh, Costa Rica, Peru, Mexico, Panama, uh, strictly Latin America. I'm a Latin American hand. I learned Spanish, and I figured that was enough. Too old, too old for another language. And this was during these 13 years. You were also producing these Civil War books. Were you, how did you combine research with being located uh, outside the United States? Yeah, you know, that's, that's a question I get I get uh, quite often, and. Uh, 
I'm never quite sure how how to answer it uh, you know fully. Um, as you well know, a good campaign study or any 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 good study biography biography or campaign study requires uh, a tremendous amount of work in primary source material, both published and unpublished. And uh, very few institutions, of course, have any any port large port any portion uh, of consequence of the materials available online. But of course, you you can obtain uh, listings of materials through OCLC and whatnot, and and uh, through the intervention of friendly archivists, would make make copies of materials uh, for me through the the wonderful help of my late mother, who uh, did an uh, numerous interlibrary loan requests for me, and by taking what's called our home leave, which is uh, uh, six weeks of uh, more or less free leave between assignments, I was able to get a considerable amount of research done. And one of the advantages, actually, I found in writing overseas as opposed to writing here is that generally uh, we live no more than five or ten minutes away from the embassy, uh, which allows one to avoid the hour to commute that you normally have in the city. So I, w- I would work about uh, an hour and a half or so every night, uh, more or less faithfully. I won't, I won't say you know, completely faithfully. And uh, one day in the weekends. And um, somehow I was able to, to produce uh, books and then still keep my, my day job. But uh, I've decided to slow down a bit uh, and uh, it'll probably be about six or seven years before you see another book from me. I think I think sixteen books in uh, in eighteen years is is about about enough for now. Uh, it's it's a very impressive output, certainly, and uh, and good books too, which is is not not always universally the case, uh, especially when people uh, pump them out. Now, uh, did you study history as uh, in college? What what was your background, or how did you get interested enough to to write about uh, the Civil War? No, actually, I didn't study history. Uh, I was an international relations major and a Chinese language minor in college, and uh, so I don't have a, a formal academic background in history. I've been interested in in uh, American history, particularly American military history, and the Civil War and the American Indian Wars since I was a uh, well, as long as I can recall, uh, since I was a child. And um, I began work on my my study of Stones River while I was an Army officer uh, with really no idea of how to get a book published, more for my own, I guess, intellectual gratification and curiosity than anything else, because I felt, I felt compelled to write, I guess I should say. And... Uh, like like you, I was looking for a, a, a major Civil War campaign that had not received a significant treatment or any real modern treatment uh, worthy of mention. And uh, I've always been interested in the Western theater, and that's what led me to, to Stones River. Which was a very interesting, uh, certainly an interesting battle. I, I remember uh, when I was at... Uh, I actually didn't go to Stones River until after your book was out because I was then working on the Army of the Ohio project and I was in the area between uh, uh, other places on on a research trip and thought I should stop there and look at their files. And the staff there mentioned that you, I guess, had not visited there uh, before your book came out. And at the time I thought that was odd not to see the battlefield, but that was 
before realizing you were doing the entire thing by essentially by remote control, uh, uh, doing research, uh, you know, distantly from overseas, which is is really a remarkable feat. And well, actually, that's not that's not true. Uh, I went to the battlefield numerous times and took photographs of about every inch of the battlefield that uh, uh, that uh, that I considered important. Uh, I talked to the wrong guy there. <laughs> no, I was there. Okay. I, I wouldn't uh, dare to write a campaign study without, without walking the ground. Uh, I spent probably, I would say, a good month at Chickamauga walking the ground. And, and uh, of course, in some cases, some battles, you, you can't uh, you can't do that as much as you might like. And, and that's particularly true of, uh, that was very true of not so much of, of Corinth, but of the first battle in my book, Darkest Days of the War, Ayuka. Ayuka is gone. The ridge on which the battle was fought is is completely gone. It's been developed, and so there there is no point to visiting there. Right. Uh, and unfortunately, in the case of the Shenandoah Valley campaign battles of 1862, there is not as much left as one would hope for because you know none of them are national uh, military parks, and what exists has been has been either been saved by by local efforts, or just by happenstance hasn't gone under the uh, developers developers plow as of yet. Hmm. And there there are still, I mean that's an ongoing struggle in in Virginia and the Valley and elsewhere where developers are trying to uh, turn last bits of Civil War land in private hands into uh, you know cul-de-sac style uh, development. Residential developments or or WalMarts even I guess they're trying to build a Walmart in the wilderness now. Uh, that's the current controversy. Right, but, and it's, it's sad. Too. I mean, but the uh, the, the most uh, telling development is in the northern portion of the valley, which in valley parlance is the lower valley. Once you once you get beyond oh, uh, uh, Edinburgh and Woodstock and get a bit uh, farther south of the valley, there's less to that. But I was amazed to find even going as far south as Cross Keys that uh, a good portion of the battlefield uh, was pocketed with, with uh, new homes, uh, just enough just enough to make it make it hard to get a, a, a real good feel for things. Uh, there was still some original land left, but it was, again, it was in private hands and and not been preserved per se, so heaven only knows how much longer it will be there. Well, you mentioned the the upper and lower valley, and I guess let, let's talk about the the book and the campaign itself. You start out with a very, uh, I thought, clear description of the Shenandoah Valley. Uh, as you point out, the upper valley is the southern part, as it slopes downward to the north to the Potomac River. Uh, but I, I rather liked the the opening section where you describe the valley itself, the the economy, the people who live there. Uh, putting this in context, as listeners to the show will know, one of the things that I find most uh, problematic with a lot of Civil War writing is that it is just uh, then this brigade went here and these guys got killed, and, and it's all taking place in a vacuum without meaning. Uh, and I thought you did a good job setting at least the physical context of, of where these things took place. So uh, for that, presumably, you must have certainly traveled a great deal uh, in that area to look around. Oh, absolutely. And uh, 
putting in a, a, a unintentional plug for one of my very dearest friends, Keith Rocco, the artist. He lives in the Valley, so even before I had a notion of, of writing a book in the Valley campaign, I was visiting the Valley on a regular basis. And, uh, and yeah, I've come to know, know it quite, uh, quite intimately. And I, I felt that in the case of the Valley campaign in particular, it was important to, to bring out the, the civilian aspects uh, of the theater of operations, bring bring out that context because the civilian population was a critical element in the conduct of the campaign, and, and uh, the impact that it had on the civilian population was considerable. And I felt there was no way to remove remove it without uh, doing a great injustice to the campaign. And uh, this is something that you know, as, as you write. As you progress in your writing from book to book, uh, you you hope to learn from previous books. And looking at my previous books, I realized that I, I perhaps could have done more of that. And I, so I made an intentional effort to do that with the Shenandoah Valley campaign book. Uh, and again, in large measure, because the civilian population did play such a critical role. It, it, in the case of Chickamauga, for instance, um, it, it wasn't nearly as relevant because there was virtually no one around. Uh, the area, as, as you know, was was uh, sparsely settled, uh, just a few uh, hard scrabble farms here and there. So, And the impact, the impact on the population, per se, wasn't wasn't considerable. And, uh, and so, obviously, you know, it varies in degree from, from study to study, but I think any of the Eastern theater campaigns where there was this heavy civilian population, you have to, you have to address that. You do, and and as you show here, it's an interesting population that uh, uh, the number of uh, free blacks, as the term was used, uh, is almost as large as the number of enslaved black people in the valley, and it's not, and even that combined, is not a very large number. That uh, there are also a lot of unionists. There are a lot of uh, Mennonites and uh, others who who are either unionist or pacifist uh, who are not participating in the Confederate war effort. Uh, really a, a wide range of, of people. And then there are a lot of very uh, avid Confederates among the civilians, especially among the women, uh, as you show. So it's a real, it, it is, it does give a, a picture of that this is not taking place in a vacuum, that there are always people living there. And I thought that was, uh, it just made the, uh, uh, how to put it, just gave a sense of reality uh, and not a sense of moving pieces on a chessboard that these were uh, real communities where the soldiers have to be passing through. Well, thank you. And it's funny you mentioned, you mentioned the, uh, the women. I, I found it fascinating to see how, um, and of course a lot of these women weren't necessarily ardent secessionists before the war. In fact, this is an aside, I, w- I was intrigued by the fact that the, the valley campaign the, the valley population was pro union for the most part until uh, the election of abraham lincoln and and uh, then even beyond many of the leading newspapers were calling for calm calling for compromise alexander Boatler, who became for stonewall jackson's congressional patron in the confederate congress as the united states congressman was pushing for compromise to the last minute so, you know, the notion that of a unified valley uh, ardently in favor of secession from the, from the get-go was false. In the case of women in particular, 
it was it was fascinating to, to note how as the the Union forces entered entered towns, particularly Winchester, that's the, the best uh, the best case in point. Uh, the majority of the fighting age men, of course, that were out of the town, either fighting fighting in the Confederate Army, fighting in the Stonewall Brigade in the Valley in a large measure, or the pro-Union men had had uh, headed across the Potomac into Maryland or into Pennsylvania or were otherwise in the hiding, that the, the women uh, of, of what were pro-secessionist views or come around to that way of thinking, they, and they found, uh, and also because the, the, at that point in the war, the Union uh, High Command was very lenient in, in their treatment of civilians. I mean, Nathaniel Banks and others were, were following the example of McClellan trying to be conciliatory and not, not provoke the citizenry, not not any way condone any sort of depredations. I think that gave the women the sense of freedom to, to kind of break the strictures of Victorian behavior and uh, to act out in... in, in uh, aggressive ways they otherwise wouldn't have. I thought that very startling. It, it really was an interesting point, and they, they certainly did that. We're going to take a short break now. We will come right back in just a moment and talk more with our guest, Peter Cousins, author of Shenandoah 1862, when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. Mm-hmm. 